you're finding your seat, I want to invite you to grab your copy of God's Word and join me in turning to Hebrews chapter 13. We've got a number of guests today. For those of you who are guests, generally speaking, we work our way uh, through books of the Bible uh, because God wrote the Bible in books and we want to study His Word in the way He has given it to us so that we can rightly understand, rightly divide the Word of Truth. And uh, we are in chapter 13, beginning in verse 15. I just want to say that that old hymn that we just sang, I think my first introduction to it was when I was in seminary, and I thought, where has this hymn been all my life? I mean, we, we celebrated, I don't know if you noticed, but we just boasted in the fact that we can't save ourselves, but Jesus came and did for us what we can't, could never do for ourselves, that His blood is enough, that His sacrifice stands in our place, and that's our theme, that's our theme song. That, that's our boast. Day in and day out, week in and week out, Jesus came and took my place. And so it is nothing for me, me to live my life for His glory. In fact, it's a delight to live my life for His glory because He came as a substitute for me, which is really what we've learned throughout Hebrews. Why would you run away from Jesus? There's nowhere to whom you would, no one to whom you would run. There's, there's no other hope. There's no other satisfaction. There's no other confidence and so this morning, as we continue through the book of Hebrews in the, in the 13th chapter, all of this theology we've learned that Jesus is our great high priest, that, that His sacrifice is good once and for all, that He cleanses our conscience, we're now getting some practical instructions for our life, both individually and in the church, for finishing this race for the glory of God. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, join me in reading verses 15 through 19 this morning. Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may re be restored to you the sooner. Would you bow with me again this morning? God, help this word to find its way into our hearts. God, your Holy Spirit is present everywhere, but we pray this morning that he would be especially present in our midst. God, that you, by, by way of your Holy Spirit, would open our eyes and our hearts to behold the beautiful things in your word. And Lord, where, where our lives are misaligned with your will, that you would use this to the end of sanctifying us and conforming us evermore into the image of Christ, your Son. God, help us to be a people who live for his glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I want to show you three things from this text this morning. Uh, to, because the gospel is the message of how Jesus saves our lives and secures our eternity, things that we've seen for 12 chapters and then again last week, because Jesus is the answer and He is the hope of our eternity, there's three more things that we see in this sort of final word of instruction from the author of Hebrews on how to finish the race. First, we offer Jesus our lives as a sacrifice in response to His sacrifice. We offer Jesus our lives as a sacrifice in response to His sacrifice. We see that in verses 15 and 16. The word then in verse 15 is very important. It means as a result of everything that we've just read. 
Because Jesus is the once for all sacrifice who saves. Because His blood doesn't ever lose its power. Because we can be nourished not only by what we do, not by what we do, but rather by, by what Christ has done back in verse 9. We see that we are fed not by our actions, but by God's grace. Because we have eternity in the city to come. Did y'all know there's a national election coming up on Tuesday? I mean, you may have seen a, an ad or two about that. And, and there's a lot of attention being placed on this city, this country right now. And as citizens of this country, we should vote. We, we should vote in accordance with our conscience and in accordance with God's principles. And the choices should be pretty clear. So if you have any questions about that, feel free to give me a call. I'd love to, love to tell you what I'm thinking about that. I'm, that's not what this sermon is about. But please vote and vote according to your conscience and for the glory of God to the best of your ability. But here's the deal. Whether your candidate wins or loses on Tuesday or in the next 10 weeks it's going to take to figure out who the winner is, if you know Jesus, you've got a city where the candidate has already been determined. And he will never lose. And any rival to his power will always be vanquished and defeated. And if you know him and belong to him, you are citizens of a city that is on the way. You're already there, Hebrews tells us in chapter 12. And yet the city is coming when Christ returns. And so don't lose hope, no matter what happens on Tuesday. But also, don't neglect your responsibility to go vote and be a part of, hopefully, bringing to the best of our ability God's precepts and principles to bear in our country this Tuesday. That was, that was not in the notes, but um, it was important to say, nevertheless. Because God has secured our eternity through His Son, we must live through Him, His Son. Do you see that in verse 15? It's a prepositional phrase. Through Him, then. Not, not in our own power, not in our own strength, but by the Holy Spirit applying the life of Christ to our hearts. That is how we live our lives as living sacrifices for the glory of God. In, in religions around the world, people worship false gods by bringing sacrifices. Do you know this? They, they sacrifice to the gods in order to appease them or to get something from them. We do not sacrifice for either of those reasons. We don't sacrifice to God to try to cover up what we said on Tuesday that we wish we wouldn't have said. God's sacrifice of His Son is sufficient. Rather, we confess and we forgive. We don't try to get on God's good side by what we do. The Christian life is a life of grateful response not of grudging responsibility. If you, if you don't like the commands of the Christian life, if you don't like living the Christian life, you might want to check out whether or not you know Jesus. Because if Jesus has changed your heart, it's not a labor, it's not, it's not a burden to live for Him. The Old Testament is clear that God is not impressed with animal sacrifices. When God, what God desires from us rather are our hearts and our minds live for His glory. You remember when Saul, King Saul, defeated the Amalekites? And God said, I want you to devote everything to the band. Burn everything, destroy everything, don't even keep one single animal. And what do the Israelites do? They keep a bunch of livestock. And they're like, you know what? We kept a bunch of livestock. We know God said not to do that. But if we sacrifice some of the animals to God, then that will impress God. And you remember when... The prophet Samuel comes and he hears the bleeding of the sheep in the background and Saul tries to cover it up and then he explains, well, we sacrifice some to God. And Samuel said this to King Saul, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. God is not up in heaven looking for us to give Him something. He's got everything. He's God. And through the gift of His Son, Jesus, God has offered to give us Himself, and He's all that we need. What God desires for us, therefore, is that we would be so filled up to overflowing with the presence of Christ that it would lead us to live our lives, compelled to live our lives for the glory of Jesus, to offer to Him not animals, but ourselves through Jesus. The words through Him are so important. We keep offering a sacrifice of praise, not in our own power or our own strength, but through Jesus. In good times, we offer our lives through Him. In our, in our difficult times, we offer our lives through Him. When our world is filled with problems, we don't do it in our own power. We do it through Him. We don't give in to the temptation to give up. Instead, we look to Jesus and what He's done, and through Him, through the enabling of the Holy Spirit, applying the life of Christ in our place, we bring ourselves to God as a sacrifice of praise. Notice that this ongoing praise, do you see there? It's continual praise. It's in the present tense. We keep on bringing a sacrifice of praise. It's called the fruit that comes from lips offering thanksgiving to His name. Remember, verse 9 says we need to be fed by grace. Jesus must be what satisfies and fuels us from the inside out. And when Jesus is our spiritual food, the fruit and the proof is the praise that comes from our lips. Do you see the reversal there? Our life is not about the food that we take in through our lips. Our life is about Jesus, who is our food on the inside. And the proof is not what's going into our mouths, it's what's coming out of our mouths as praise to the living God. The name above Every name. You see, the praise is not focused on our name, my name. It's about His name. The name of the one and only one who can save. So here's a question of diagnosis this morning. A, a question that could maybe the Spirit could use to help sanctify us this morning. Does the fruit of your lips continually demonstrate that Jesus is the food of your life? Does the fruit of your lips demonstrate Jesus is the food of your life? You know, people who have been delivered want to talk about the one who delivered them. Psalm 107 verse 20 tells us this. He sent out His word and healed them. He delivered them from their destruction. And then verse 21 and 22, we get their response. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His deeds in songs of joy. The the overflow of a Christian life that's satisfied in Jesus is songs of praise, statements of praise. I've heard stories from people who struggled to read and then a teacher came along and taught them how to read. And you know who they talk about? They don't talk about themselves. They talk about that teacher that changed their life. I've heard athletes who struggled with one concept in baseball or basketball and then a coach came and helped them get it. And you know who they praise, who they talk about? It's that coach. It's that teacher. It's that mentor. It's that parent. And so it must be in the Christian life. We've been delivered from death into life everlasting through Jesus and He is the name and the one that we praise. Then in verse 16, don't stop with praise. We are commanded not to neglect the sacrifices. See, there's the sacrifice of praise and now two more sacrifices are added. Not to neglect the sacrifices of doing good and sharing. 
Now that word sharing means generous giving, yes, but it's more than that. It's this partnership of our lives with our brothers and sisters. It's this life-on-life commitment to to be devoted to our church family and to love them to, to the depths as Christ loved us. We must not neglect living lives that reflect the change that Jesus came to make in us. We must live these lives not out of obligation, but out of gratitude. J.I. Packer once said it this way, Holiness is always the saved sinner's response of gratitude for grace received. Holiness is always the saved sinner's response of gratitude for grace received. Doing good and sharing are not burdens. They are sacrifices that please a holy God. And they please Him because they are offered Not to get on God's good side, but in response to what God has already done for us in Jesus. Christians should be the very best employees in the world, doing good, even in tough situations. Why? Because Jesus is their food. Christian employees should be reliable, dependable, skilled, learning, conscientious, diligent, diligent, honest, grateful, and content. We should be all in for our employer because we are fed not by our work, but by Christ on the inside. We we should be the best neighbors in the world. We should live selfless lives in our neighborhoods and in our communities and in every sphere of our life because Jesus has nourished us on the inside. He's touched our lives. He's transformed us, healed us, delivered us in every aspect of life. And therefore, we do good, and we partner and we share for the glory of God. So on the one hand, God is not pleased with sacrifices that are designed to cover up the condition of our hearts. Well, I did bad on Monday, so I'll do something good on Tuesday, and then it'll all go away. That's that's not how sacrifice works. On the other hand, God is pleased with sacrifices that flow from lives that are lived for his glory and out of gratitude for the gift of Jesus. But the reality is, church, we live in a world and in our own flesh, we live with the constant temptation to neglect praise and to instead focus on our own problems and to stop resting in the gospel and start chasing other solutions. We are tempted to be distracted rather than live lives devoted to the glory of Jesus. And God knew that this would happen. So guess what He did? He called out and equipped leaders to serve Him by leading His church to stay focused on the main thing, Jesus Christ crucified and His mission in the world until He comes. So that's the segue between 15 and 16 and what we see in verse 17. You should live in this way in grateful response to Jesus. But I know you live in a world that's going to cause you to want to be distracted and forget that. So God has called leaders and He's appointed leaders to lead you in this mission. In verse 17, we see that we must understand the responsibility given to our leaders and we must obey them. In verse 17, the church is commanded to keep on obeying and submitting to their leaders. In in this context, Hebrews is most likely speaking of the church pastors. We we believe that because of what verse 7 says, the leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Uh, Another term that is often used for these leaders in the Bible is elders or overseers. Now it's important to note, this, this command to obey assumes 
that the leaders are leading from a commitment to follow God's Word and that they're magnifying Jesus. It assumes that they agree with the theology of Hebrews, that Jesus is better, that He is their substitute, that He is their sacrifice, that we should live our lives uh, in obedience to Him out of gratitude, if we, as we've just covered. If, if the leaders aren't consistent with that message, then the responsibility of the congregation is not to obey, but to dismiss. However, if the pastors are leading from the Word of God and for the glory of Christ, the church is commanded to obey. The Word is to obey and keep on obeying. The word for obey here does not mean to follow blindly, but it means rather to be easily persuaded. It means to have a trusting and favorable disposition towards the church's leaders, to give the benefit of the doubt. Sadly, in many churches, the default position toward their leaders, because we live in a culture that does not like authority in any aspect, the default position toward leaders is often skepticism rather than support. But the book of Hebrews says it must not be that way. The author recognizes the, the tendency that we have to not want to follow. So he urges the church to keep on listening and following the church's pastors as they keep on leading out of God's word. The second command in verse 17 is the word submit, and it's a bit stronger than the word obey. The word obey is, is be easily persuaded. Let, let the arguments of your leaders, the, the counsel of your leaders shape your heart. The second word is, is submit, and there's, there's no way to soften that one. It, it, it is we yield to authority or even stop being resistant to authority is the sense of the word. You see, in our flesh, we want to be our own authority but the gospel leads us to stop being our own authority and to embrace God as our authority. And a key way that God has given His people to live out their submission to Jesus is in submission to a local church. Submission to God's authority happens through faithfulness and obedience to Christ as spelled out in His Word, and that includes following our leaders in covenant with a local church family. Now, in the New Testament, it's important to note that Churches were not led by one pastor, but by a team of pastors. In fact, Baptists captured this tradition all the way through the 1800s. Baptist churches didn't have a, a bunch of committees and one pastor. They had a team of pastors leading the church. And it, it seems uh, in the New Testament that some of these pastors were paid, 1 Timothy 5.17, to, to give double honor to those, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching of the Word, but there were others who probably had other jobs in the community, but were also called as elders and gifted and trained and qualified and had the character to serve as an elder because they were also apt to teach. And this team of leaders, this team of pastors, shared in the work of teaching and shepherding and leading and equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. This team held each other accountable. They supported one another. They shared the load. They challenged and encouraged and pushed and sharpened each other. In his book called Why Elders, a little short 100-page book by Ben Merkel, he argues that the Bible shows us that a local church is supposed to be led by a team of elders or pastors or overseers. I appreciate his insights when he writes this. A plurality of elders or pastors provides the church with balance. No one person has all the gifts or time needed to provide all that a congregation needs. As a result, most pastors are not capable of adequately fulfilling all the responsibilities 
set before them. They may be gifted in one area, but lacking in another. Some pastors are especially gifted in preaching and teaching. Others are better gifted in administration, counseling, or discipling. By having a team, the deficiencies of one man are balanced by other pastors who complement his weaknesses. Did you know your pastor has weaknesses? Just like you. And there are certain things that I am very gifted at and other things that, praise God, He's put other people around me to do a much better job of. The call to respect and follow the church's leaders is found throughout the New Testament. This is not just in Hebrews. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love. Why? Because of their work. Did you know pastoral ministry is a challenging work? In both Thessalonians and Hebrews, it's the nature of the work of a church's leaders. It's the weighty responsibility that God has given to them that should lead the church to obey and submit in joy. You remember in 2 Corinthians when Paul is defending his apostleship, the church is undermining him and they're questioning him. And he's like, what in the world do you need to see from me that lets you know that I love you and that I love God and I want your best? I, I have suffered beatings and stoning and shipwreck and sleepless nights and hunger and threats and all these external things as bad as they are. Then he adds this verse, apart from such external things, there's something even greater. There is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. I got to tell you, church, the pressure of leading the people of God for the glory of Christ to the city to come is constant and it is full of spiritual warfare. Satan doesn't want me to succeed. He doesn't want me to finish and he doesn't want that for you either. The church is to be led by multiple pastors because they are assigned far more than just the work of preaching the Bible. The work of Pastors is often referred to in the New Testament as oversight. They must manage their household well. Why? Not just because they have to preach the Bible, but because they must also take care of the house of God, 1 Timothy 3.5. We see this in Acts, 1, Acts 20, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Timothy 3, and 1 Peter 5. The Greek word is episkopos, oversight. It means to scope out all the details. It means seeing the whole big picture and how it all ties together in the stewardship of God's resources, maximizing impact, mobilizing people, and making disciples. This is the work entrusted to God's leaders in a local church. The details of how all this fits together in the overall picture is important to God because people are important to God. He gives leaders to the church to consider and lead at the intersection of His Word and the world and His church and His people and that's called oversight. This function is included in verse 17. The leaders are described as those who keep watch over your souls, who will give an account. Why should we obey our leaders? Because God has called them to watch over our souls. The work of watch care is a heavy work. It's a constant work. The work of watching over souls and helping the church pursue ever-increasing faithfulness to the never-changing Christ in an ever-changing world, it never stops. You never clock out. It's always on your mind and on your heart. 
Oversight, knowing and watching over souls, means knowing the human heart and knowing God's Word. It means praying with desperation for souls that are in danger, that people would come to saving faith, that they would repent, that they would stop doing what they're doing, which is contrary to the will of Christ. It means removing the logs in our own eyes constantly so that we can see clearly to do spiritual surgery to get the speck out of our brother or sister's eye. It means constantly pursuing the heart of God and the mind of Christ so that we can be shepherds after God's own heart, feeding God's people with knowledge and understanding, Jeremiah 3, 15. God gives leaders to churches to keep watch, to see to it what we often don't even see in ourselves. And He promises that leaders will have to give an account of how they led. He says to the church, look, go ahead and obey. Be be deferential. Why? Because they're going to stand before God one day. And James 3.1 says, not only are you going to stand before God like everybody else, but it's going to be a harder, more severe judgment. Church leaders will stand before God and give an account, not just of their personal lives, but of how they kept watch over souls and led the church toward gospel faithfulness, which is why I am so high on church membership. I want to know, are you in or are you out? Because when I stand before God, I want to know who's on the team that I was responsible for and who I wasn't, because watch care is a serious work, and I... And the pastors of this church will stand before a holy God and give an account. So when your leaders lead from the gospel and for the sake of the gospel, the right response is to follow for the glory of Jesus, for the good of our own souls, and for the well-being of our leaders who will give an account. Notice the second sentence in verse 17. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. In other words, it's not about your leaders just having a wonderful life. It's actually good for you. Hebrews makes it clear that following our leaders is a spiritual issue. To ignore this command doesn't just harm the leader, it harms the church. As one commentator said, when a church does not follow or follows grudgingly, they put themselves at risk because grudgingly, listen to this, grudgingly obeying our leaders does not sharpen our hearts. It hardens them. In a culture that dismisses, scoffs at, and rejects authority. The Bible says to the church, for the sake of your own soul, follow your leaders as they follow Christ. A church that does not follow its leaders gets distracted by many relatively unimportant things. And it lacks a consistent focus on and witness to Christ that is so unifying in the body and so compelling in the world. You know what the world needs to see right now? It needs to see a church family loving one another, following their leaders on mission for Christ, because no other organizations are doing that. The world needs to see an organization that is doing this because it will be compelling and others will be drawn to Christ thereby. A church that is following Jesus by following her leaders, looks something like this, or would say something like this, Lord, whatever it takes, no matter what it costs, no matter what You would call me to lose or surrender or give up or change or learn or develop or cultivate in response to God's Word and in obedience to my leaders for the praise of my King, my yes is already on the table and I'm not taking it back. And when a church follows her leaders like that, i got to tell you, there is great joy. The joy that comes when the lights come on in somebody's head and heart and they really dive in in their marriage, they really pursue the heart of God, the joy that comes from that is overwhelmingly positive and it fuels the leader to the next level to keep on going for the glory of Christ. And praise God, it's, it's happening in North Roanoke. It's happening in churches across our country. Churches, I, there was a little church in 
uh, Cary, North Carolina, before we moved back to Virginia. And they were arguing. They were, they, their size was diminishing every week. They would come at Pastor, what's wrong? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things wrong. Do you really want me to tell you? Well, yeah, just tell us what's wrong. Well, you're arguing about a display case in the foyer. It's ugly. The trinket's in there from 1957 and nobody cares. Throw them away. <gasps> I'm serious. Just, just throw them away. It'll be all right. Get a dump, a dump trunk at midnight is one of the greatest blessings in, in the life of a local church. So they're dwindling, they're dwindling, they're dwindling. And I preached a sermon uh, a couple weeks before Christmas there called Christmas and the Call to Die from Philippians 2. And I said, if you really want to exalt Jesus in your community, you're going to have to live like Jesus and you're going to have to lay down everything so that the nations would make much of the name of Jesus. I called it Christmas and the Call to Die. And then I never heard back for two and a half months. I thought, they really liked that message. <laughs> two and a half months later, my phone rang and they said, hey, we've been praying over thinking about what you said for the last couple months and, and you're right. And we want you to come help us die for the glory of Jesus. And on a Saturday morning in a fellowship hall with the namesake of the church on the wall and her sitting right there, they committed to surrender everything. The name of the church, the constitution, the bylaws, the processes, the display case in the foyer. And I'm here to tell you today that that church now has a group of pastors leading them for the glory of Christ and they're not arguing about a display case they're putting on display the glory of God in their community like never before because they laid it down they listened to God's word and they followed their leaders but the enemy doesn't want that to happen the enemy hates the church and he hates church leaders and he loves us to be distracted and divided over the color of carpet, the paint on the wall, and all this other nonsense. He wants the church to be distracted by foolish things and adopt a posture of skepticism and distrust and hostility toward their leaders so that their leaders will quit or they'll grow weary or they'll fail morally and there will be a mess. That's what the enemy wants. Which is why verses 18 and 19 are so critical in closing. Look at verses 18 and 19. He transitions from instructing to, to begging. He, he commands them to, to bring a sacrifice of praise. and He commands them to obey and submit to their leaders, but here He commands them to pray. Church, we've got to pray for our leaders to remain faithful to Jesus under pressure because the world is filled with pressure. Paul often asked the church to pray for him in his letters, most often that God would work through him for the advance of the gospel. Here this pastor has been separated from his church, perhaps because he is in some sort of persecution or legal jeopardy for his faithfulness to Jesus. And he tells the church, look, my conscience is clear. I'm following Jesus. I, I am being uh, loving toward my neighbors, maybe even those who have him in prison. And he tells them, I want to conduct myself honorably in all things. He's not bragging about what he's doing. He's begging the church to partner with him in prayer in this season in his life. Though the world is set against him, though it seems he's guilty in the court of public opinion, his focus is sta on standing before God as a minister of the gospel. His conscience is clear, and if his conscience is clear, he knows the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through him, which is greater than all other powers that might come against him, but he also knows that he's just a man. 
And he knows at any moment he could surrender to fleshly weakness. He knows his vulnerability and he asks for the prayers of the church and expresses hope that God will bring about the day that they are restored to one another. Why? Because he's not just over the congregation in the Lord. He loves these people. Church, I can't overstate how desperately your leaders need you to pray for them. God works through the praying of His church. In churches where leaders have failed morally, either with finances or with sexual infidelity or any other manner of ways, in churches where leaders have failed morally, I have so often heard the church say, you know what? We weren't really praying for our leaders. There's a lot of crying now because our pastor's gone, but there was no crying out to God that they would be faithful, that God would strengthen them for the work that they are called to do. And so I want to beg of you, North Roanoke Baptist Church, in a way of personal, a point of personal privilege this morning, that you would pray for your leaders. That you would cry out to God on behalf of your leaders now, that there would not be crying later. That we would stand before God and give an account and that we would be able to hear God say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. As I close this morning, I'm not in prison, praise God for my faith, but I know pastors are facing in our culture intensifying pressure to cave in on the gospel and its implications. They are faced with the same temptations that you face. The same struggles, the same challenges, the same pressures, the same weaknesses, and often even greater weaknesses. And what your pastors and your leaders need most of all is your prayer. Prayer that we would conduct ourselves honorably in all things. That we would put the gospel and faithfulness to Jesus before anything else, no matter what it may cost us. So as I close, I want to ask you three questions. How is your sacrifice in response to the sacrifice of Jesus? Does the fruit of your lips prove that Jesus is the food of your life? Secondly, how is your love and obedience and submission to your leaders? And finally, Would you pray for us? Like everything on earth matters. Like eternity is in the balance. As I close, I want to share with you a story about Charles Spurgeon, the famous pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London from 1853 to 1892. During his travels, he once met an American minister who said, I have long wished to see you, Mr. Spurgeon and to put one or two simple questions to you. In our country, meaning the U.S., there are many opinions as to the secret of your great influence. Would you be good enough, Mr. Spurgeon, to give me your own point of view? And after a long pause, Spurgeon said this, Sir, my people pray for me. This morning, if you need to evaluate your sacrifice your attitude towards your leaders, or if you want to just come and resolve and say, I'm going to be a person of prayer, a champion of prayer, holding up the arms 
of my leaders in prayer, we'd invite you to come as we stand together and sing in just a moment. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we give you praise for this day. We give you praise for the reality that though we are weak, you are strong and you have purposed through the prayers of your church to strengthen your leaders and through the leadership of your church. God, by your leaders committed to your word to, to help your church to stay faithful and to finish the race. So God, we give you praise for these final instructions for finishing. And God, we ask that there's, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, God, if there's anyone here who, when they, when they try to obey you, it's a struggle because it's, it's not done in response to what Jesus has done, but they're just trying to get on God's good side. God, let, let them leave that behind today and instead run to the feet of Jesus and to find that they can be cleansed and redeemed and forgiven and sanctified by His blood once and forevermore. God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.